0: Hey, what's good, fam? We appreciate you tuning in to the South City Church Podcast. It's our prayer that as you hear the better story of Jesus, you might experience more of his redemptive power in every square inch of your life. Hey, we're a church plant. We benefit greatly from outside support. So if you'd like to partner with our ministry here, you can go to southcityrva.com slash give and join us in seeing strangers made family in Christ. Richmond and beyond. God bless and shalom. Good morning. It is good to see you. Um, Hey, if you have your Bibles or your copy of God's Word, please get it out and turn with me to Genesis chapter two. We're going to continue to make it easy on you. The second chapter of the first book of the Bible. We are continuing our sermon series this morning titled "Blueprints." blueprints, restoring God's good design. We are really returning to the foundation of human life as we know it here in Genesis in the beginning. I don't know if you've ever uh, built some Ikea furniture. I don't know if you enjoy spending an afternoon uh, swearing at Swedish plywood uh, or maybe kids you've built some Legos. You know that you need a reference point. You need some instructions in order to build it right. And in the same way, God has provided blueprints for his kingdom, many of which we find here in the beginning of the human story. We turn to Genesis and we find answers to some of life's most fundamental questions. Who is God? Who are we? What is our role in the world? What has gone so terribly wrong? What has God promised to do to make all things right through Jesus? And we've applied those questions to a few topics already. We've applied those questions to creation as a whole, all of nature. We've applied those questions to to human beings, image bearers of God, the crown of creation. Uh, we've applied them to manhood and womanhood, the the unique ways that God has made men and women to reflect who He is. And we've applied it to work, the the goodness and the value of our work in the world. And this morning, we turn our attention. To the topic of marriage and family marriage and family and I'm really gonna focus primarily on marriage Uh, you can only cover so much in one morning marriage being kind of the the linchpin the core of a family so we're gonna focus primarily on marriage Uh, if you are not married um, I want you to lean in okay the temptation might be I'm I'm not married or I'm not married anymore I don't want to be married uh, and to kind of disengage, I would encourage you to to lean in because marriage is something that God has made and what God makes is good. And there's something that we can learn from it uh, regardless of where we are in life. So we're going to turn our attention to marriage here uh, and God's blueprints for marriage in chapter two, verses 18 to 25. Let's read it. Then I'm going to zoom out and uh, kind of set the stage and then we'll dive back in together. I hope that's okay. Let's read chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds and the beasts, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. We're talking about marriage and family this morning. And I got to spend some extended time with my bride and my two boys this past week down in Florida. I got some time away at the in-laws. Uh, Shout out to Fred, my father-in-law, who is always uh, tuning in online. Fred is always diligent to make sure that I know when I have preached uh, a sermon that's too long. So you have a friend in Fred. Shout out to Fred. And uh, one of the things that we love to do is sit out on the dock and watch the sunset over the bay. And it's best when the water is calm and the sky is clear and you get this almost perfect reflection of the sky in The water, it's almost like the real thing. You get like a double sunset. And when you look at Genesis and throughout the scriptures, we see that God designed marriages and families to reflect heaven in the same way that that water reflects the sky. To reflect who God is, his nature, his character, and what he's doing in the world, the gospel. Now, of course, every human being, every individual possesses the image of God. Every person, whether you're married or not, is like a a pool of water that reflects the character and identity of God, but in a unique way, in a fuller way, when a man and a woman covenant together, are joined together in union, play their God-designed role in marriage, bear children, raise them in the ways of the Lord, it's like a grand and expansive sea that reflects all the contours and the colors of who God is. That's why Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor by all. The Christian family is heaven's mirror. It's a dramatic parable of the story of God, which, which has at its very center a marriage. The marriage of Christ and his church. Unfortunately, uh, not everyone agrees with this, uh, to put it lightly. Um, opinions about marriage, what it is, why it matters, have changed dramatically. In the Western world over the last 50 years, uh, traditional marriage or biblical marriage, uh, w- which I would want to define as the covenant union between one man and one woman, which is, I believe, how scripture defines it, uh, has been under attack in re- recent decades. And I say attack, not just because I, I'm trying to pick a fight or something like that. Um, I, I think uh, what we've seen in the last few decades is not just like indifference and people being like, ah, well... To each his own, let's just let everybody kind of do what they want to do. I think what we've seen is a, is a calculated and, and obvious attempt to kind of scrub out God's fingerprints from society and from our consciences. There are strange spiritual forces afoot that would want to muddy up the waters and destroy the image of God in the world. So what I want to do before we come back to the text is, is zoom out for a minute to, to, to orient ourselves with, with where we are and how we got here. So I'm going to give you some stats. I think it will be helpful to orient us. So over the last 50 years, the marriage rate has dropped 60%. Okay, going from 75% marriage rate in 1970 to 30 today. If you took a sample of 100 adult women from 1970, 75 of them would have been married. If you take the same sample of 100 women today, Only 30 of them would be married. If you continue that trend for the next 50 years, only 12 in a sample of 100 would be married. The fact is people are just not getting married like they used to. Another significant shift is that the age that folks uh, are getting married has become older and older. Uh, Folks are waiting longer in order to pursue their career or other interests before they lean in to find a spouse. In 1970, the average age for uh, getting married for a woman was 22, and for men, it was 24. Today, it's 27 for women and 29 for men. And you can add to that the troubling fact that over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And those numbers increase significantly with second and third marriages. As a result, the U.S. has the fourth highest divorce rate of any country in the world. This is not to mention the many debates that are going on today about uh, the validity of same-sex marriages, men marrying men, women marrying women, open marriages, marriages where a spouse can be free to, to have second and third marriages or, or sleep with other folks outside of the marriage, polygamous marriages, right, marriages with more than one spouse, and marriages with animals and inanimate objects. These are conversations that are happening today. Now, you might not feel like this is a big deal. Let's just kind of let everybody kind of do their own thing. Uh, But these trends have significant impacts upon society at large. It it affects other people. And it especially affects the most vulnerable among us, children. Today, only about 64% of children live in homes with two married parents, representing an all-time low. Children who grow up in single mother homes are five times more likely to grow up in poverty, 14 times more likely to commit sexual assault, 20 times more likely to end up in prison, and 32 times more likely to run away from home. Thomas Sowell, a black sociologist from Stanford, uh, he writes extensively on this subject because he sees the breakdown of marriage as the, the number one cause for uh, the racial disparities we see in this country, and that's something that we should care about. Uh, he points out that in 1960, 20% of black children grew up in single-parent homes. So 80% grew up in homes with two married parents, 20% um, single-parent homes, not too bad. But 30 years later, that number had more than tripled in just 30 years. Today, 67% of black children grow up in single-parent households, 67%. What happened between 1960 and today? Well, according to Thomas Sowell, uh, because the same trends can be seen in white families, the causes ought to be linked. He identifies two social transformations, both occurring between 1960 and 1980, to explain this, two transformations in society that corrode God's design for marriage. Again, we're trying to orient us to how we got here, and these two these two transformations were the sexual revolution and the welfare state. Sexual revolution and the welfare state. Thomas Sowell uh, speaks about this. He says that um, the sexual revolution redefined the purpose of sex so that it was no longer about intimacy and marriage and procreation, but sex is all about self-expression and pleasure. right? And, and additionally, the sexual revolution gave rise to abortion, allowing women to be sexually active outside of marriage without the undesired consequences of children. And then, almost as if it was kind of a a strategic uh, two-part strategy, uh, the welfare state injected money into low-income communities, which further disincentivized husbands and fathers from being responsible to provide for their families. And further disincentivized women from getting married because, as another black sociologist, Jason Riley wrote, The government quite literally paid mothers to keep fathers out of the home. So we saw these ideological shifts about what it means to be human, about what our deepest needs are, about about what the problems are and how to solve them, and, and who gets to decide. And those changes have done a number on marriage, and it's left millions of broken lives. In its wake. The data is undeniable. The data is undeniable. Biblical marriages are the building blocks of a healthy society. It's really hard to argue with whether you're a Christian or not. And if Christians are called to love our neighbors, which we are, then we ought to advocate for biblical marriage, support and strengthen our marriages and the marriages of those around us. And as a general rule, pursue marriage ourselves. I say a general rule because certainly God gifts some people uh, with the gift of celibacy and singleness to, to build the kingdom outside the home without the constraints of, of the family, and we celebrate that. But the biblical norm is that we advocate, support, strength, and pursue healthy marriages and family for the good of society. Now, here's the thing. The main reason that we want to fight for godly marriages it's actually deeper than the benefits to society. The reason that we fight for godly marriages is because godly marriages and families are where God shines forth the beauty of who he is in a unique way. You see, godly families are where we most clearly observe the story of God dramatized in human relationships. Marriage is good for society, Because God is good for society. And so my hope for you this morning is that you would have your imagination stirred and that you would be drawn in to see the beauty of God on display through marriages and families like the sunset upon still waters. And that we would be a church who advocate for and strengthen biblical marriages, not just because it's morally right and we care about, you know, doing the right thing, not just because it's good and beneficial to society, but because it's beautiful. Because we want to see and reveal the beauty of the triune God. So let's go back to the text. And what I want to do is draw out, uh, briefly draw out five ways that godly marriages reflect the divine story of who God is and what he's doing in the world. Since marriage is the center of the family uh, and I'm trying to make sure that Fred is good with my sermon length, we're just going to focus on marriage here this morning. And these five ways are union, covenant commitment, procreation, complementary roles, and glorious delight. These are five ways the godly marriages reflect the divine story. Union, covenant commitment, procreation, complementary roles, in glorious delight. First union. Look down at verse 18. We see it in a negative sense here in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Now, the original audience is reading through Genesis, uh, reciting Genesis as kind of a package deal. You're moving from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And when we come to this verse 18. It's not good that man should be alone. This ought to jump out to us because what have we just read over and over and over and over again, six times in chapter one, let there be, and then there was, and it was good. Let there be, and then there was, and it was good. It's kind of like a little ditty, let there be, and then there was, and it was good, let there be, and then there was, and it was good. And, and really, we're supposed to have that, that rhythm kind of stuck in our head and we're, we're skipping, skipping along, let there be, and then there was, and it was good. And then wham, we slam into verse 18 of chapter 2. It is not good. All the repetition that came before is so that when you come to chapter 2 and read that, it screams at you, it jumps off the page. The whole narrative arc of Genesis 1 to 2 is building towards the union of man and woman in marriage, the fullest expression of the image of God in human relationships. Really, that's why we have this odd kind of parenthetical here in verses 19 to 20 about the animals, right? It says, uh, not good for man to be alone. Then we have this whole thing about Adam naming the animals, and then it comes back around to Eve. The whole animal thing is, is meant to highlight and set up the preeminence of the woman, she is the climax of the creation account. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven seven. 7, woman is the glory of man. If man is the crown of creation, then woman is the crown jewel at its center. God's original design was for man and women not to operate independently or interchangeably, but to be united in a lifelong one flesh union. They were fit for one another. And so we read in verse 24, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That one flesh there speaking of sexual intimacy, where physically the two become one, which is really just a picture of this spiritual intimacy and this union of soul. So how does this reflect the Godhead? I'm going to ask this question for each one of these points. How does this reflect the Godhead? Well, God is a union. God is a union. He is a we. Three persons in one God. Three persons united in this one essence of divinity. God is himself a union. And so in our union with a spouse, we reflect the the very character and nature of God himself. How does this reflect the gospel? Well, Jesus, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity, he comes to earth as the the good and better groom to pursue his bride and unite her to himself, his bride, the church. He comes to unite you and me and the people that he loves into everlasting relationship with himself. He invites us into a marriage. He bears the sin of his bride on the cross, forgiving her so that she doesn't have to bear the consequences. He clothes her in the beautiful white garments of, her, of his righteousness. And then he enjoins himself to her, to us, in everlasting union. It's often the case when we talk about singleness uh, and celibacy that we highlight the fact that Jesus was single. And I think that's a really important thing to point out when we talk about Singleness, it's one of the primary things to point out, I think, when we talk about the gift of singleness. But sometimes that conversation could be misleading. Uh, Yes, when Jesus was here, he did not take a single uh, woman, uh, earthly woman, to be his spouse. But but he took a true and better spouse. In one sense, Jesus was single. In another, very real sense, maybe even a deeper sense, he is not. The whole story of God is this, this arc of a marriage, of the Son of God pursuing His bride, the church, and bringing her into a union with Himself, which our marriages reflect to the watching world. The watching world looks in on your marriage and the marriages of those around you and sees something about the story of God. What a beautiful thing. So uh, let me give you one brief application here for, for these. Um, application here, well, is to believe the gospel. If you have not trusted in Christ, he wants to enjoin himself to you. He wants to bring you into this everlasting relationship with himself. He loves you like a husband loves a spouse. Come and be united to Christ through faith. If you are not married... I would encourage you to pursue marriage, if you can, to pursue it. It is a good thing to pursue. We should celebrate the pursuit of marriage and come alongside our single brothers and sisters and help them. If it's not something that you desire, do not feel like it's something that you need, perhaps God has given you the gift of singleness and celibacy. Let's celebrate that and and leverage your freedom for the good of the kingdom and the good of the church. And lastly, if you're married, and I'll, I'll keep uh, most of the application points to those who are married, uh, remember that oneness is the goal. Oneness is the goal. And uh, just a, a brief uh, application here is to really prioritize your sex life. Uh, we don't need to get into all the details of this, but it's something that you should prioritize. Uh, and I have the privilege of uh, officiating the ceremony. I'm super pumped. Uh, and the reason why we do that of them having the, the father bring the, the bride down to the front is because of what we see here in Genesis 2. It's all about this, this covenant commitment that this, is offered publicly before the sight of witnesses and God. Look at verse 22. After God had created the woman at the very end there it says and he brought her to the man. This is almost like a, a father bringing his daughter to her husband. He brought her to the man. And then the man offered this covenant vow, this word of covenant affirmation. Covenant just means this binding relationship, this, this promise, if you will, commitment. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, which as we go throughout uh, the rest of the Bible is, is used again to refer to these covenant relationships. And then, of course, we see in verse 24 uh, that. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast. That word is to God. It means to be me joined, covenantally connected to it. It's the same word that's used of, of Israel's covenant relationship with God and his relationship with them in Deuteronomy 11.22. Show your love to the Lord, walk in his ways, and hold fast to him. This is why Jesus said, When God is joined together, let no man separate this covenant commitment between man and woman to stick to one another, to fight for one another, to be faithful to one another. It reflects the Godhead. How does it reflect the Godhead? Well, God is a covenant making and covenant keeping God. You zoom out, the whole Bible is really a, a covenant document. The first five books of the Bible are seen as a covenant document with, with Genesis being pre. It kind of defines the, the characters who are involved in this covenant relationship. John Crane says the whole Bible, though it seems diverse in content, is one big story of God making covenants with mankind. God is a covenant making and covenant keeping God. And friends, for those of you who trust God, He promises to never leave you nor forsake you, no matter how faithful you are to him. Praise God for his covenant to us. And it reflects the gospel. Jesus is the initiator of what's called the new covenant. He's our covenant representative who who fulfills our end of the the partnership so that that we don't have to live under the burden of doing so. He bears the, the penalty for our violation of the covenant enters us into this, this new covenant relationship where we're sustained therein, not by our ethnicity as native-born Jews, not by our good works as those who do the right thing all the time, but we're sustained in this new covenant by the grace and faithfulness that Jesus has for us. Our relationship with God is all about his covenant with us to never leave us nor to, to take it. So, application here, and this will be primarily for those who are married, but would encourage you to speak your covenant commitment to your spouse. Covenants are always spoken or written, but communicated with words. So, speak your commitment to your spouse. Maybe you naturally just do acts of service or or you're generous, you spend time with your spouse. Would encourage you to write notes to make sure you're communicating with words, hey, I love you. I'm really glad God brought us together. I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. You're my best friend. Speak your covenant affirmation to your spouse. This reflects the Godhead and the gospel. Number three, procreation. Uh, When we got married, we just had a 10-year anniversary. We got married Um, well, 10 years ago, and uh, in the first five years of our relationship, I really did not want to have kids. Uh, I thought that it would be a barrier to my happiness, a barrier to what uh, Mickey and I wanted to do together. Uh, but man, I'm just gonna be honest with you looking back, uh, I have regrets about that. Like, I want to know, I want to know my great grandkids, I want to think down the road about how to develop my. uh, I believe I was being foolish. Uh, I'm not putting that on you. If you don't have kids, I'm just saying it for myself. Uh, I think that I was being foolish. And I think that if you ask any faithful Christian couple who have had children, while they may be honest about the challenges, they will tell you that their marriage is better for them. Their marriage is more full and glorious because of their partnership to shepherd these children. Remember, we don't get to define what marriage is. God does. And part of his definition of marriage is that it is the container, the context, the habitat whereby we bring new life into being and raise them in the ways of God. Look at verse 28 of chapter 1, flip over at me. This is after God created male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth in subduity. having kids. Be fruitful and multiply your offspring. Not only does this teach us about the purpose of marriage, it also teaches us that procreation, having kids, is a blessing. He calls them to have kids in this this same sentence where he says, God blessed them. And it's not that he blessed them and then he said to them, it's he blessed them by saying to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue Psalm 127, verse 3. Children are a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are reward. Now, we have to acknowledge that we live in a broken world. Not everybody can have children. Having children doesn't always feel like a blessing. The world is broken. Vicki and I have had two miscarriages in the last year. It's been really hard. It's not always easy, friends. If you or someone you know is struggling to have children, it's important to remember that God is not doling out punishment. He's not punishing you or those that you love. We live in a broken world and we need to to comfort those who are experiencing that. But as a general rule, as a normal, marriage is for the purpose of procreating and raising children and this reflects the Godhead. The love that exists eternally within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit poured forth into creation. Almost as if God couldn't help himself. We read in John 17 when Jesus is talking about the love and glory that was shared within the Godhead. That love and glory spilled over and new life came into me. God created we are little image bearers in the same way that my sons are little image bearers in me. There's a sense in which God is all about Father. And we reflect his Trinitarian nature. Think about this. That God the Son eternally begotten of the Father, sharing love and glory with one another. Proceeding from them is the Holy Spirit. And God created man in his image. And from the side of man, created woman. And proceeding from their love and glory, came children. That man and woman and children would reflect the divine, trinitarian nature of God. And it reflects the gospel. Jesus invites us to be born again. He invites us to experience new life that... That more and more people would come to know Jesus that their hearts would be changed and they would be made sons and daughters of God you think about the calling to make disciples the great commission it's all about God trying to grow his family God wants a big huge happy family I see some big families in the house you know it's not always easy especially kids, I know it's not always easy getting along with your brothers and sisters but it's ultimately a good thing for you, it's a beautiful thing have these rich relationships. God loves you to give you those. God wants a big, happy family where we would have thousands, millions, billions of brothers and sisters throughout history, and that we would come into that family through Jesus. So, application, will encourage you again, those of you who are married and of age to do so, some of these application points are kind of geared towards the primary demographic of our church. So, bear with me if I'm not going to hit in your stage of life here, but for those of you who have kids and are young in your marriage, uh, or don't have kids, I should say, and are married, have kids, man. Have kids. Have kids and have more kids. Now, okay, so this is just me. This is not thus saith the Lord. This is just Jonathan speaking, okay? So, just uh, display right there. But I think that based on the fact that children are a blessing, based on the fact that God's mission is to essentially take over the world with more and more of his people, based on the fact that the the families of the Bible were large, based on the fact that that families throughout history were large, I think that we would probably do well to consider having more kids rather than putting caps on things. And and I think just an encouragement and wisdom for you, is to not make a decision about whether or not you want to stop having kids when you're in the heat of the battle. You know what I'm saying? We got a lot of young families here, and it's going to be tempting, you know, when you have a child and they're, you know, six months old, it's hard to be like, I don't know if I want to do this Well, just hang on, wait a little while, wait until some of the dust clears, and then make a decision from, from, from a place of sober mindedness about how you want to handle besides your family. Have children. It's a beautiful reflection of the Godhead and the gospel. Four. Complimentary roles. Uh, Confession. My voice is a little hoarse. I stayed up too late last night. I stayed up too late last night watching the Celtics. It was a big game six. I love basketball. I love the Celtics a buzzer beater. It was really, really stressful. And I was like, why do I do this to myself? Um, But why am I telling you this? Your view of me is steadily increasing. Um, Every player on the Celtics is a very important role to play. Every time they take Rob out, they Rob, Time Lord, our center. I'm like, where's Rob? Put Rob back in the game. We need Rob. Because Rob is integral to the success of the team. And if Rob's not out there, we're in trouble. Hey, like if Rob is out there, but he's trying to be the point guard, he's bringing the ball up the floor, like, that's going to be a problem for us. God makes each person differently and he gives them a role to play on the team. And it's the same way with men and women in marriage. Look at uh, the end of verse 18, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Highlight fit for him. That doesn't mean somebody who can go do stuff for him. It means a co-laborer who fits together with him like two pieces of a puzzle It might be shaped differently but when they come together and play their role, you get a more beautiful picture and things move forward towards well, uh, success and victory. Fittedness Implies complementarity. Fittedness implies complementarity. Equal in dignity and honor as image bearers of God? Yes, but interchangeable? No. We get no sense throughout the scriptures that men and women are interchangeable, that husbands and wives are interchangeable, that fathers and mothers are interchangeable. This is why when God curses Adam and Eve in chapter 3, you see him curse Eve in sixteen, and he curses Adam in seventeen. We won't read for time's sake, but he's he's cursing their primary role in the world, their their priorities. He curses Adam's work in the garden, and he, he curses Eve's childbearing and her relationship with her husband. This is also why in the New Testament, when men and women are called to different priorities and values within marriage, uh, I'll read to you uh, Ephesians. 5, verses 22 to 25, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, Wives, notice the verbs here, let you notice the verbs here. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and in laying Summarizes all of this by saying, "Husbands, see to it that you love your wife, and wives, see to it that you respect your husbands. Love and respect, love and submission. Right? It's it's two distinct ways that we care for one another in marriage and support one another. Men are called to lead and take responsibility for their wives and their family to do so sacrificially, not forcefully." Would dominate over his wife. A wise man listens to his wife, encourages his wife, empowers his wife, makes sacrifices for the flourishing of his wife. It's humble, sacrificial headship. And women are called to respect and support and submit to the leadership of their husband. Not in a empowering way, but in a supportive and strong way. Participating in his mission the way that we participate in the mission of Christ who is our man? Men and women are also called to prioritize uh, different things within the family. Men are called to provide and oversee the family. Women are called to nurture the children and maintain the home. Now listen to me before you rush the stage. That doesn't mean that women cannot work outside the home. We read Proverbs 31, which is this portrait of a godly woman. She's a hustler, man. She's going out, she's making things happen, she's buying land, she's selling stuff in the marketplace, she's making things happen. But the priority, the primary value for women, the center of gravity is the home and the children. It's, it's very clear. We see here Titus 2 3 5. Older women are to be reverent in behavior and teach what is good and train the younger women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at the home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be revived. And this is a beautiful thing because it reflects the Godhead. Within the Trinitarian Godhead, there are complementary roles. The Father did not die for you on the cross. The Father does not fill your heart. Jesus, the Son of God, died for you on the cross. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within your heart. Right? Each member of the God has a, has, a, has a specific role to play. And we reflect that in marriage when we play the roles that God has designed for us. And this reflects the Gospel. You know, Ephesians 5, it goes on and it says this. Paul writes, This mystery, the mystery of marriage, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and His Church. Christ and His Church. Husbands are to look like Jesus. Wives are to look like the Church. Husbands are to look like Jesus in a unique way. Wives are to look like the Church in a unique way. There's kind of application here. There's kind of two dishes you could fall on when talking about. Uh, roles in marriage. And one is the caricature bitch, right? That men are machismo, just doing all the work and, you know, asking the wife to make them a sandwich and whatever. And women are just quiet and submissive and in the kitchen and they burn out all the time. That's, that's not the biblical model that, that we get when we come honestly to the scriptures. It's not true and it, it defames either the God or the men and women. That's not what we're at. But there's another ditch on the other side of the road, which is the, the ditch of interchangeability, interchangeable parts. That The woman can act like the husband, the husband can act like the wife, the, the, the husband can be the primary caretaker of the home and the children, and the wife can be the one primarily working outside of the home. It flips God's primary model and value that we see in the scriptures. And I, I think that we're less, today, today, in Richmond, Virginia, in 2023, with our congregation of young folks, we're less in danger of falling off uh, the side of, of the ditch of uh, the caricature of new room, and we're more in danger of falling off the side of interchangeability. And so we just encourage you, by way of application, to, I'm not, I'm not saying that it has to look the same for every family, but consider it in terms of values. If if God uh, is calling women to to value their home and their children as a a primary orientation, does your life reflect those values? Does your decision-making, does where you spend your energy and your time and your resources reflect that value and that priority? Husbands, God calls you to provide and lead. Does the way that you live with your wife and your family, does how you spend your time and your energy and your resources reflect that value, that priority of leading and shepherding and providing? I would encourage you to ask your spouse when you go home, hey, in what ways do I need to grow in living out these values and priorities? In what ways do I need to grow in living out these values and priorities? Have a conversation about it. If we could play our role on the team. This reflects the Godhead and the gospel. Moving to land the this every, What I just shared is so counterintuitive and so countercultural that I'm sure there's ways in which it kind of rubs up against your sensibilities. But I want to encourage you that, that God, God is after your happiness. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to flourish. God wants you to have a big smile on your face. God wants you to be singing and laughter and joy in your own God is after your happiness. He's after your <coughs> delight. And he knows what's best for you. You can trust him. And don't we know, friends, by following Jesus, that oftentimes we have to die in order to live? We have to sacrifice in order to live? This is the way of Christ. Let's apply that to our marriages and our families. Number five, glorious delight. God is after your own happiness. We've got some uh, new children coming into the church, and I was talking to Stephen about uh, Hudson being born, and we're both like getting emotional talking about it because I had. We had a traumatic time with our first son, Shepard. shepherd, and um, both of us experienced this thing where uh, the baby wasn't breathing when they when came out. And we were on the edge of our seat, and I just got to hear, and I just got to hear, and why can't I hear, him? why can't I hear, him? I went yelling at the nurses, like it's their fault. And then all of a sudden, he cries. And my heart just melts. Because when you, when you hear that first sound, that first sound, that first cry, you know, he's alive! And here, in Genesis 2, the first time that we hear, as readers, the first time that we hear the voice of Adam, he's crying out in joyful song and celebration about his wife. Look at verse 23. The first words that we hear Adam speak. This, at last, finally, is the sentence. Finally, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last. And then, of course, they go on to be naked and unashamed, no shame, joy and happiness and delight in one another. This is what God created marriage for: that we would delight in other image bearers of God, that we would delight in our spouses. That we would experience joy when we see them and speak to them and engage them and spend time with them. That our marriages would be a source of great happiness and delight not just for those of us who are married but also for those who get around us and for those who come into our homes and get near us and live on our streets and come over for dinner and for a fire and they see the way we engage with our spouse and they are invited into friendship and relationship with us and there's joy and delight that ensues. created marriage for delight. That's why we have Song of Solomon in the Bible just as gushing forth of of delight and happiness in our spouse. And this reflects the Godhead. For within the Godhead there is everlasting delight. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit delighting within himself and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit delighting in you Zechariah 3:17, the Lord your God is with you. He will save you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Think about that. God, the God of the universe, the God who made you, it knows you, it knows all your problems. He sings over you. He loves you. He wants to spend time with you made God very, very happy. God delights in his people. And it reflects the gospel. Jesus delights in us. It's the reason why he came. Hebrews 12 2 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning shame. What was the joy? He already had the joy of intimacy with his father and his spirit in eternity. What is the the only joy that Jesus could unlock on the other side of death? The joy of being united to you. The joy of seeing your sins forgiven. The the joy of seeing you clothed in in righteousness and being brought into everlasting, abiding, intimate relationship with himself. Jesus delights in you. That's why he died. It's why he rose. It's why he's here calling to you now to come to him. Come to Jesus. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. You are his own. The apple of his eye. I would encourage you to make sure that you're getting time away with yourself, your spouse, your marriage. Get some time away. Find someone. Find someone in the church to help watch the kids. Mickey and Animal Anybody. Get some time away. Date your spouse. Take retreats. Spend intimate time with your spouse. Stir up the love and affection and delight that God created your marriage for. Sometimes it gets covered up in all the stuff of life. And we've got to step back and lean in afresh to the one God's God has given us. Friends, the Bible is a glorious love story. It begins and it ends, Revelation 19, with a wedding. The Bible begins and it ends with a wedding. God needs to save the world through a marriage. Marriages and families are a mirror to the divine story. So, by the grace of God, to forgive us when we have erred, strengthen us when we are weak capture our imagination where our hearts have grown dull. May we be a people who are so captivated by the story of God that we wholeheartedly pursue his reflection in our marriages and families, not just because it's morally right, not just because it's good and beneficial, but because it's beautiful. Because we want to see in save Of the triune God who loves us with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God of love who poured forth. Your own love and glory into creation, and then brought your creation into relationship with yourself in covenant union. And we put many barriers in between that relationship, and you went to great lengths to clear this lake, to remove the debris, to clear out the waters, and to restore our relationship with you in Jesus Christ. Thank you. For your love. Thank you for being a good and better girl. We thank you, God, those of us who are married. We thank you for our spouse. We thank you for our husband and our wife. And we just encourage you right now to thank God for the husband or the wife that he has given you. Thank you, God, for my wife. Thank you for my those of you who are not married and want to be married, I pray that you would bring your eagerness, maybe your anxiety, maybe your frustration to the Lord and ask Him to provide a spouse for you. Lord, would you provide a husband to the women in our church and in our community who long for us? Wise for the men in our church who desire to do men. Would you provide them? And would you encourage them in their relationship with you where they are loving and remind them that you are the true and better spouse of your people? And for those, God, whom you have called to a life of singleness and celibacy, I pray that you would. strengthen them. And I pray that they see the beauty and the glory of being able to to, to be free to spend time with, with spouses and encourage them and bless them and strengthen them and to bring more people into the family of God and to run hard after the things of the kingdom without any constraints. What a beautiful thing. Would you encourage them?